Welcome to Eye for the Light. This is another Newton and Co podcast. And as usual, my co-host David Newton is here with me. Hi, David. Indeed. Hi, Chris. Uh, good, good to be back. Uh, today, we have uh, an incredibly interesting Danish photographer who works in, I'm going to say an extreme environment, probably an unusual to work in environment, somewhere that not maybe as a lot of people go to, but one steeped in history uh, steeped in the ways of indigenous people and with an exceptionally beautiful landscape. Uh, so, Carsten Egervang, uh, I hope I pronounced your surname correctly, Carsten. Close enough. Certainly very close, so thank close you. Very enough. Much. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome to Eye for the Light. And yeah, we're we're very keen to find out a bit more about you and your work because we've seen a lot of your black and white photography, and it is well, it's spectacular. Uh, so I'm going to hand over to Chris and let Chris yes, kick so, us off. So, well, let's, let's start with how you first got into photography. Where did you start? Did you have a camera as a child? Were you bitten by the bug? Tell us. Well, yeah, I did, actually. I did have a camera, as, as many other photographers. I was into photography, yes, as a kid. And uh, growing up, being a teenager, I, I spent all my savings on buying uh, camera equipment at that time. So I was I was very much into photography in my in my teens and my uh, early twenties, uh, but then at some point I lost interest. Uh, I think uh, thinking back, I think that I was not able to get the images that I had in my in my head with my uh, with my equipment. So slowly I, I sort of lost interest, and then for a period of time, maybe 10, 15 years, I didn't photograph at all, which was really strange. But I remember at that time, I still, when I was biking through Copenhagen in Denmark, when I saw some uh, some nice light or some good uh, good stuff along the way, I was thinking that could be a nice image. So even though I wasn't photographing, I still sort of formed my formed images inside my head. Yeah, then I moved to Greenland. I've been coming to Greenland for the past three decades. And uh, when I moved there with my family, I, I there were so many opportunities to get good images. And then then I had to get a camera. And then it, it really started started from there. And that's that's about 20 years ago or something like that. I mean, what prompted your move? You you said you were you were taking pictures, then you stopped taking pictures, but I, I believe you were a research biologist. Is that what moved you to Greenland you went there to carry out research or did you just go hey Greenland looks like a fun place let's go explore actually when I was was I was about 15 years old 15 16 years we were a group of of guys four uh, four boys going to the northern Scandinavia to do tracking and photography and when we were sitting along the bonfire at night, we all always talked about Greenland because at that time I knew that Greenland was was known for its prestige landscapes and its its untouched nature. So before even going to Greenland, I already knew that it would be my thing. So when I was, I always been interested in 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 biology and and especially in birds. So I started at the University of Copenhagen doing my education on biology. For me, it seemed like a natural choice to, to do research in, in Greenland. So, And when I was doing research, uh, obviously, I brought my camera into the field. And along the way, I would document the, the species that I was working with and the kind of fieldwork we, we were conducting. So my photography at that time was mostly to document the, the research that I was doing. 
there's quite a jump between documenting research and producing the kind of fine artwork that you do now. Like you said that you were developing your eye even when you weren't taking pictures, but how did that come about? How did you how did you kind of move from that very I'm going to say dry documentary very clear-cut storytelling into the more artistic approach of photography? Well, obviously that happened over me a period of time, long period of time over over many years. But I I remember earlier that the kind of images that I wanted to do was um, only by I only wanted to get wildlife and landscape into my uh, photography. Uh, for me, it was important to document, not document, but show the the animals in their natural in- environment. And I, I did that for a number of years. I would say I was a traditional wildlife photographer at that time. But then something changed with me because I, I realized that if I wanted to to show Greenland the way that I was experienced Greenland, I needed to get people in my images as well. The way that the local people of Greenland is living in this rather extreme landscape is extremely fascinating. The the connection to to the landscape and the wild wildlife as well. Uh, started to to build up and feel it, well it, it it interested me a lot so I, I slowly moved into to to photographing people which I would never have done 10 years earlier um, so that that was quite a difference in approach from landscape and wildlife how did you set about approaching photographing the people and their culture did you use the same kind of techniques or did you have to adapt no, I think uh, adaptation was needed because uh, you don't you don't don't need to talk to animals and landscape, of course, but you <laughs> do to people. Uh, so, so to me, it, it it took a lot of courage to to start sticking a camera in a person's head when you don't really know them that well. Uh, so, I think that even nowadays, I'm a very slow photographer. I realized over time that, of course, I need good camera equipment, but I need time even more. Time is extremely important to me. So so when I go to Greenland, I always plan to go at long periods of time. And for the first days when I meet two uh, new people, I do not photograph. I just spend time with them. And then after a couple of days, I start picking up my camera and and, and photographing. I, I think compared to other photographers, I'm, I'm very slow and spend a lot of time getting uh, the images that I hope for. I suspect that that time you give up front pays back in the images you get because you can't you can't really get underneath a person's skin or or get into a story until you understand it a bit more and that is not a you know you don't click your fingers and suddenly have that rapport with someone it takes time to build up so you find the value in spending that time to begin with i think it's needed i I don't think i could get the images that i that i that i want if i wanted to do a do it as a quick uh, fix and I know in the in my younger days I was a lit, little stressed out with in terms of could I would I get the images that I that I hoped for, but nowadays I think I'm more relaxed. I realize I just need to go to these places because it is so extremely beautiful there, and if I go there and uh, spend long periods of time and be ready to jump on a uh, in a boat or on a dock sled, I know that the the images will come uh, slowly. So. Um, I just need to go there. Then things will happen. I'm I'm, I'm very confident in that. It's a, it's an intriguing approach, which leads into a question of, you know, do you pre-visualize pictures or do you just wait for them to appear in front of you and then you you capture them as they as they are there? No, I do. I do very much so. And I'm leaving I'm leaving in five days for Greenland and and my dream image is already in my head. Obviously, 
a lot of stuff is gonna just click in order to to that uh, to to happen. So it's probably gonna be a completely different situation than I imagine in my head. But I, I do have an image already in my head that I I'm hoping to get. So it's gonna be interesting if if it's gonna work or not. How often do you find that that pre-visualized image? evolves or changes once you get there is it is it do you stick very much to what you have in your head or does it go in a different direction quite often it always goes in a different direction but uh, nevertheless i think it's important to to dream about what could be nice to have in an image and and then always something else happen especially in greenland uh, the weather is so unpredictable and uh, there are so many things that come well not go wrong but but certainly changes the the plans that you are making from home uh, so that's another another type of approach I, again i realized that i can't really plan all that much from from denmark i just need to go there spend time and things will happen i'm sure how do you find or what adaptations do you have to make to working in such an extreme environment obviously the weather is very changeable the temperatures are very cold how do you prepare yourself for spending such long periods of time out there to get those pictures obviously uh, good clothing is essential uh, i used to buy all the expensive stuff in in the in the shop in in europe uh, but then i realized i sort of copy what the locals are uh, are using they know exactly what is working and what is not working so i i i sort of copy what they are wearing and if you're not warm, you can't perform. I mean, you really need to, you need to, you can't be all, all cold because then you can't photograph, then you're all, all miserable. You really need to, to stay warm. That's, that's very important. Does it help having a, a home there now, a base that you can come back to and take some time out and then go out again? Yeah, it, it, it helps me a lot that I'm going back to the same places uh, over and over again. I think that other photographers, they may be, sort of shopping more uh, going to the, the the sweet spots around the world to do like go to finland to to do photography of wolves and bears and go to svalbard to get polar bears images and stuff like that i think it helps me a lot that i go back to the same communities that i have been doing so for the past 20 years at least now i'm i'm riding on the dog sled with a second generation uh, of people that i know up there so i used to go with the father and now the son has taken over so in that way i think it helps me a lot uh, to to have that kind of connection to to people and i wouldn't get that if i were in south africa one month and then in uh, australia the next or something like that it would be again it takes a lot of time but it, to me that is the right way to do it i don't know if that answered your question yes it does and having moved from um photographing wildlife and landscape primarily to now also photographing people and their cultures how has your photography of the people changed over the last few years while you've been there are you photographing in a different way are you trying to get different things in your people pictures what I really dream of getting is that animal human being in uh, connection or that time where you in in the same frame have both the the local people and some kind of wildlife which is usually the hunted species so so that uh, connectivity there are between humans and animals in greenland that is what i'm trying to get so both people and animals in the in the images that's that's sort of my dream images uh, we're going to take a a marginal tangent but very much related you've been going to greenland now for you said 20 or 30 years Gre greenland is 
probably at the forefront of climate change. It's one of the places where it's quite obvious of what's going on. How have you seen that change over the time you've been there? And you know, how, how obvious is it? And what's the impact you're seeing on the, the Indigenous people? Well, that is a very large or uh, question to answer. I mean, the, the effects of climate change in Greenland are seen in, uh, in multiple ways. And I think it's extremely alarming what, what is going on exactly in these years. I mean, usually here in the West, we are talking about climate change as being something going on that will prediction of what will happen in the future. But in Greenland, it's it's taking place right as we speak right now. Uh, changes are profound and obviously are changing the living conditions for both animals and human beings so rapidly that it's it's very difficult to to cope with. The migration routes of animals are being changed very fast, so it's very difficult to predict exactly how it's it's going to affect uh, the animals and and the locals in, in the future. But there's no doubt that it's going to have a profound effect. And and, and change uh, everything, no doubt about it. Probably a, a, an equally large, though very short question. Do you think it's reversible? Do you, do you think we can get back to how it was? Is, is climate change reversible from your experience of what you see in Greenland? Is, is the short yeah, version um, of that question. Yes, it's a really sad answer, but I'm, I'm afraid not. If you study the science behind uh, climate change models and such, it, we have probably reached a point of no return, especially when you see the melt-off of the giant Greenland inland ice. 80% of the land mass of Greenland is one big chunk of ice. And it is melting and it is accelerating in a way that we had no idea just 10 or 15 years ago. And even if we were to turn back the clock and stop our uh, rising temperatures, the, the inland ice would still uh, melt because of these complicated feedback mechanisms. So I'm afraid that I'm uh, rather pessimistic about the future and, and, and what is going to happen in, in the Arctic. You touched on one of the ways that you're seeing this change, and that was in the migration route of the animals. Presumably that's related to the melt of the ice. But how is it impacting on the local cultures? Well, the, the local people uh, depend on the on the animals. Uh, they, they hunt the animals for survival. And in doing so, they rely on uh, knowledge built up over many generations. It's passed on from generation to gen generation. In order to be a successful hunter, you need to know where you can find the animal at, animals at what time of the year. That's extremely important, of course. But that is changing these days. So. The polar bears and the whales and the fish and literally everything is not uh, behaving like they, like they used to do just 10 or 20 years ago. So locals have to adapt, of course, and they do so. They do their best. But I'm afraid it's it's going to turn everything upside down. So um, let's see what's going to happen in, in the future. But as, as, as I said, I'm rather pessimistic uh, exactly about that. You talked about being a biologist before. Do you work closely with the scientific community with your photography? You said you were you used to photograph to document what your research was doing. Do you still have a scientific involvement in what you're doing? Yeah, I do. And actually, I think that's where my photography is is being most, um, uh, what's the right word? Well, I think that when I do co-work with researchers in terms of to communicate their scientific results, I think, with visual storytelling, that is where I feel more most uh, successful as a photographer, because I have I have sort of a 
well, I have a scientific background, so hopefully I can understand some of the complicated stuff that they are doing and and, and then show with my images, uh, show their findings or their results in a different way that you could do through the uh, traditional uh, scientific journals and, 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 and such. So I, I do like working together with, with researchers and I have been doing so in the past and I, I, I have some more uh, projects coming up where I will be doing exactly that. How do you find your photography in terms of its power to affect change? You're, you're working with the scientific community. You're saying you're seeing benefits. How how are you seeing those benefits? How's how's that helping? Well, obviously, that's really difficult to to measure. But I but I have a feeling that with my photography, I can reach a much broader audience that I could as a researcher. Uh, I often had the feeling being a researcher in biology that people that would read my scientific studies were a very limited group of, say, 12 people who are working with the same kind of words that I was. I might as well uh, email them and, and say, look what I've been spending last three years of my life on doing. Uh, but but it's I have the complete opposite feeling with my photography. I, I think that I'm able to reach a much louder, uh, a much uh, a larger crowd with my images, and tell the stories in a different way, and as an alternative to to the scientific way to to communicate. Do you think that the the photography that you're doing and other photographers are doing similar sorts of things is reaching the right people that can actually make change with the climate? There's this gap to bridge between having beautiful imagery that people go, "Oh wow," and I care about this to influencing the people who actually make the decisions that can change the way the planet is going? It would be wrong of me to say that my personal photography is is changing uh, anything on a broad scale, but I think that many people are doing what I do, and I think uh, it is the right way to do it. I'm not sure how to answer your question because I don't have a concrete example of uh, someone important decision maker viewing my images and then all of a sudden changed their mind uh, completely. But it takes a long time to convince people, of course. It's just a matter of being out there and showing showing things. If we turn the question around a little bit, if you could look crystal ball into the future style, what would be your ultimate hope or dreams for your images in terms of what they achieve? That would actually be to be seen by decision makers and and tell them just how alarming and serious the situation is uh, right now. If I were able to show people what is going on in Greenland and how well how serious it is, I, I think that I hope that it could maybe change someone's mind. I'm, I'm not sure how to to describe it better, but but yeah, that would be I think, the case. I think what I was getting at is is there a a middle step? that we need to put in between people like yourself that are producing the evidence and the imagery to support this and the people who are making the decisions? Do we need someone or an organisation in between the two that's kind of bridging that gap to get real change to happen? Yeah, yeah, that would be nice. I'm not sure how to answer that question exactly, but... but um, Do you have well, any thoughts on, on what that might be or who that might be that, that is the key in that link? Obviously, our politicians are not doing enough as it is i mean we have we have the solutions we have the technical solutions to to fight uh, climate change but it's just not developed yet so we need to put more money more funds into developing the alternative methods of creating say electricity and such uh, in a more green way so hopefully that could change in the, the next couple of years 
we need to do something, right? It's it's we are past the time of talking now. We we need to do something concrete in order to to get to the next level. We have so many COP meetings where people from all over the world they they meet and they discuss what's going to happen next. We're going to do a 1.5 or a 1.7 degree rise in temperature, and to be quite honest, not much is happening, right? So we we need to take larger steps now in order to to proceed. I think. Do you think that a groundswell of public opinion can be this change, or do people have to feel it in their pocket in order to act? Absolutely. Yeah, the, I think changes like this come from beneath instead of top. If we as people, we start demanding, we need to take steps to to change this. I think the politicians have to, have to listen, right? I think to your point, the, you're right, we're not short of the technology. We know what we need to do and we know how to do it, but it just feels like there's maybe a lack of desire to actually do it because it's going to be a bit like pulling a plaster off. It's a little bit painful. And, and maybe that's where the imagery that you and others create maybe makes that plaster pulling process a little bit easier because it makes it a little bit more insistent as well, rather than as you said, reading dry text or, you know, 12 other researchers reading text that they kind of already know anyway. Is that maybe where your photography helps by getting that groundswell of public opinion? Well, that is certainly my hope. So yeah, exactly that. The things um, I've always felt about conservation and the photography that stimulates that is that it kind of started with showing the worst and where I find it interesting is what you're doing is showing really beautiful imagery of somewhere that's changing and going to be lost. What made you take this approach? Well, I think you're completely right. We need to show what is going to be lost in the future if we, if we don't do something. By showing uh, just how uh, unique the wildlife of the Arctic is and just how unique the, the culture and the traditional living of the people up there is, by showing exactly that, hopefully that will that would change people's uh, mind. And and from my own perspective, I, I don't think that I'm I'm motivated by by being told all the time it's going down the drain. It's it's everything is is just uh, bad, bad, bad. I think we need to be shown in images just how beautiful things are in the Arctic and the rest of the world in order to appreciate it and and, and stop preserving it and start preserving it. Obviously, you know, the more voices, the better. You are your one voice capturing Greenland. If someone, say a student, wanted to try and get into this area, conservation, sustainability, trying to get this story out there, what maybe what advice would you give them to help increase the number of voices telling these stories? Because surely more voices are better. Absolutely, and and even though I'm I'm working a lot by myself uh, alone, I'm I'm also a part of the Arctic Arts Project, which is a group of visual storytellers, both both footage and and still photography, trying to communicate the effects of of climate change in the Arctic. So you can do some by yourself, but it's better, of course, to be more people together in order to reach a, a larger uh, audience. In terms of good advice to a young photographer trying to do some of the same stuff that I'm doing, I think you you really need to change your mind about how the world is is looking. I mean, going to Greenland, you will find out that people have a total different perspective on the world and a perception of how everything is 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 connected. So I think you need to have an open mind in 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 order to to understand what is exactly going on. 
I've been living in Greenland for six years and been going there for almost 30 years. And I still feel that I'm only scratching the surface of the understanding of, of how people are, are connected to the, the nature up there. Because there are so many layers. Well, it takes time to understand and appreciate exactly what's going on. What do the Greenlanders think of the rest of the world and their attitude towards climate change? Obviously, they, they know that climate change is caused by the Western world and the pollution found in the Arctic is, is also something that happened in another place in, in the world, but then were, with the wind carried into the Arctic. So obviously, they don't appreciate it very much, but it's, it's also very interesting to see they are very much fatalists that they will observe what's going on and then they will just try to adapt. They will shake their shoulders and say, what can we do exactly about this issue? Well, not very much. So they will try to adapt. These are not the people that are demonstrating in the streets, yelling out loud what, what is going, changes must happen and such, such like this. They, they sort of see the situation and then they try to adapt to, to new changes. They have been doing so for thousands of years in the Arctic. I think the ability to adapt to, to changes is, has been extremely important in, in the past. And, uh, well, it still is. I guess they have do have a very different way of life. They're very much more a, a subsistence lifestyle, whereas in the Western world, we try and bend the world to suit our own requirements. They live by what nature tells them. So they, it's almost, I guess, a, an inbuilt, hardwired adaptability to what nature is doing. And, and that kind of leads me on to something you touched on earlier. You talked briefly about when you're photographing the hunt. For example, they, you know, they live with nature. Their perception of nature is different to our perception of nature. The Western world says, well, you can't hunt whales because that's terrible. Uh, and you can't hunt polar bears because they're cute and fluffy and we need to protect them. But their perception of that is very different. And I guess my question is, one, how do you rationalize your Western world mentality with what you're observing in their way of life? And two, how do you, how do you see that playing out from a subsistence global change, climate change perspective? Well, I think you're you're very right. That is exactly the the situation. That please remember that my, I used to be a researcher, and most of my work was focused on how to conserve animal species, uh, populations of animals that may be uh, decreasing or or increasing. That was what my job was to to find out how can we preserve these species the best way. So in in those days, say twenty years ago, I really think that hunting, even though it's a subsistent hunting, hunting was well, a bad thing, actually. So when, and this obviously took place over a long period of time, when I started joining local hunters and realized just how important that hunting is to, to the local community up there, I slowly changed my mind, not into that everything is just good and uh, hunting without quotas should be allowed. I, I don't think so. I think it's, it's, it's necessary. But when people like me, like researchers, come and say to the locals, you're not allowed to, to do that. You're not allowed to shoot the animals that you've been living from for the past uh, thousand years or something like that. It really messes up a lot of things in, in the identity of, of people up there, the way that they, they use the, 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 the nature is unique in every way. So, so uh, slowly I changed my own mindset about what is right and what is wrong and who are we that grew up in the, in the West to come and, and tell these people you shouldn't you shouldn't be doing that in your own backyard. You shouldn't be killing whales because, well, we don't like that in the West, right? 
This is really complicated stuff. I mean, I'm constantly in conflict myself when going there in, in terms of what is, it's not like I take no pleasure whatsoever in seeing a dead animal or a animal being killed. I, I don't. But on the, on the other hand, I think it's extremely interesting how people in 2023 still uh, living in many ways the same way that they have been doing for hundreds of years. I mean, that that is really the key feature of what I think is interesting, that in our modern world, people are still living that way. Because it's not like they are undeveloped. Greenland is the country in, in the world with the highest uh, number of per capita that have access to the internet. So even the, the smallest settlements in Greenland, they will have they will have internet. So it's not like they don't know what's going on in, in the rest of the world. They are certainly uh, informed and uh, to a certain kind also very, uh, very well educated, but they still choose actively to take advantage of this life form that that they have been doing for many years. So it's, um, yeah, to me, that's extremely interesting. I wonder whether there's um, an interim step or whether there are other examples globally that we can look at. So if you take the Maasai Mara, for example, the Maasai hunting lions, as the West, we did go in and say, you can't do this, which has created some problems, but they've then found a way around it, namely through tourism. If we're honest, Greenland is not on the average person's tourism destination. Is there a method of maybe creating the conservation through tourism in Greenland, or is it too extreme an environment, too inhospitable, too hard to get to? No, I think to a certain to a certain point, you could increase the interest in preserving the animal populations by having more tourists coming to Greenland. To a certain degree, I think that would be possible. It's not practiced today in Greenland. There's not really a connection between what tourists would like to see and and, and, and conservation in, in Greenland. Uh, but I think over the next years and next decades, uh, that could be the case that uh, that would happen in Greenland too. You mentioned earlier on, and I said we'd come back to it, you, that you've got some projects that you're working on. Can you give us a little insight? What what are your objectives in the kind of near and mid term for your work in Greenland? What are you what are you going out there next to see and photograph? Yeah, I'm I'm, do, I'm going to Greenland on a regular basis uh, between three and five times per year, and I'm I'm doing various things. But as as I mentioned earlier, I think some of the best stuff is when I'm working with researchers. And uh, a exam an example of of that is that I've been doing a research and communication project on the Greenland sled dog, which is in every sense a unique creature. So we were a group of more than twenty people researchers and communicators together that, that started this project on doing really hardcore genetic work on the dog and uh, different kind of science uh, and then combining it with visual storytelling uh, on the dog. So that is uh, that is uh, one example of things that where you can use your photography, I guess. And uh, this time I'm, I'm, I'm I'm going to Greenland again to, to try to document how the, do- the sled dog is, is still used today. I'm joining a hunter uh, in, in East Greenland who is probably the last hunter who is still using his dogs for hunting musk oxen. Uh, snowmobiles are taking over, but this guy, even though he's in his, he's not an old guy, he's in his mid thirties, but even though it takes four or five times longer to use your dogs, he still insists on, on, on doing that. So um, my hope is that I'll be able to, to document that with my camera before it completely disappears. Uh, so that is, uh, that is one example. 
find your approach very interesting because many uh, wildlife photographers will focus on conservation, but they're focusing on one element of it. Whereas what you're doing is you started, of course, with the wildlife and the landscape, but you're bringing in the people and it's not just the people, it's their way of life and how it interacts with all the other, the other elements of conservation. That complete approach seems to be a much better way of approaching conservation, a much better way of telling the story. In my mind, it really is because if if it's just a top-down uh, legislation telling that you uh, you can't hunt these animals, I think that people are not really um, interested in in listening to to that kind uh, of laws being forced uh, upon them. I think you need to include the local people in any kind of conservation in order to make it a successful uh, story. I mean, there's so many ex examples around the world of where locals have not been included and, and it, it hasn't really been a, a successful story for either the conservation or, or the local peoples. You need to see conservation as a whole, including both men and, and humans, no doubt about it. So this is uh, like interesting to, to what we were talking about before. What do you hope for your photography? I strongly get the feeling that your communication say, is not just outbound to the Western world to show them what's going on, but your imagery, your communication is inbound into Greenland as well. Is there an educational aspect to the local people with what you're trying to do? Yeah, uh, there is. Uh, my, my images have been used to to exactly that to educate Greenlanders in what is special about. I mean, if you if you grow up in Greenland and and you 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 grow up dog sledging all your life, maybe you don't realize just how unique that is. But by showing but showing that also internal in Greenland and telling the stories of how unique the dog is, I think or I hope that people would remember to appreciate their culture and their importance of of their own culture. It really shouldn't be me as a Dane coming and, and doing this stuff. <laughs> it should be uh, Greenlanders doing what I'm doing. But right now, it's not taking place. Uh, even though there is some skillful uh, photographers out in Greenland, local Greenlanders, they don't focus on the same stuff that I'm doing. But I'm sure in 10 years or something like that, we will have some uh, skillful Greenland photographers who is hopefully appreciating the culture and, and remembering to remember to document for the aftertime too. I guess it seems like there's an interesting disconnect there. Obviously, you know, we have that phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. So they, as you say, they grow up dog sledding. They grow up with their dogs. That's just, it's like me having a dog. It's, it's just a dog. They don't see the uniqueness of it. But you talked about their strong desire to try and maintain their existing way of life. Does that in itself act as the barrier to them seeing what is unique about where they're living? I'm not sure I quite understood the question. Can you rephrase so, it? So essentially, because because they're so familiar with their environment, they don't see what's unique about it. And they have this strong desire to maintain their existing way of life, their way of hunting, what they're doing, their subsistence lifestyle, if you will, that they end up with the disconnect between what is special and what needs documenting or what stories need to be told, because either they're familiar with it, so it's not special and they're therefore not interested in it, or they're so entrenched in their way of life and their desire to keep doing that, that they, they're maybe almost blinkered to seeing what's special about it or what needs to be protected. Yeah, I guess um, I, I guess you could you could say exactly that. I think it's also important to stress out that Greenland is a very contrasting uh, community. You have the West Coast, which is really well developed and a, a high level of education. 
very much like a a, a small town in in Denmark or, or UK or whatever. Modern lifestyle, people will go to to work every day in their four wheel cars and and, and such, uh, drinking cafelada on on cafes and such. So that's one one end of it, and then you have the other uh, the other end, which is uh, the more remote uh, area where where the life is very much like it has been for the past 100 years or something like that. So it's not, I think, I don't want to be the person that say Greenlanders are thinking in this and this way and they are acting in this and this way because, I mean, people are are different and they are acting in complete uh, different ways. Just like we here, we have different perceptions. So, so I think it would be wrong, wrong by me by saying Greenlanders are in this and this way and, and thinking in this and this way because it's, I mean, people are different, right? Sure. Okay. Well, we're going to. I think we're probably going to wrap this up. And and uh, any regular listeners will know that we do always have uh, one question which everybody asks, and Chris doesn't enjoy me asking. Um, we we sort of touched on it earlier on, but but we're going to take it into a slightly different direction. If you could go back to the younger you, talk to yourself thirty years ago, with everything you've learnt through your photographic career up to now, what one piece of advice would you give yourself to improve what you're doing, or, or stay the course, or you know that you think would help in your career? I think that when I made the decision to leave Academica behind and try to be a full-time photographer, I was very anxious about how is this going to be possible? How can I live from my hobby, right? How can I turn my 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 passion into a living? And I think the best advice I could have given myself 15 years ago was uh, take it easy. Things are going to work out just fine. I mean, uh, it's it's... Obviously, I, I'm not spending as much money as when I was a researcher and have a, a monthly fee. But um, I mean, in my mind, I think just relax and things are gonna good things are gonna come to you. I think that's been my best lesson. Uh, I think that's fabulous advice, Carsten. We both get asked so often, you know, how do I make a living out of photography? And quite often, you just have to decide it's your passion and just go with it. And if there are hard times, there are hard times. But if you have that persistence and love of it, you will get there in the end. That's true. Well, Carsten, thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule, prepping before your next trip to talk to us. It has been uh, interesting and intriguing. It's opened my eyes to uh, a part of the world that maybe I've been aware of, but didn't know as much as I should. And I think it's probably inspired me to go and learn a little bit more. I'm also going to investigate how I can get to Greenland because (laughs) your pictures show the beauty of it. And I, I need to work out how I can go and see some of that for myself. So thank you very much for your time. Uh, and good luck with your next trip and upcoming projects. And I'd concur with all of that as well, Carsten. It's It's been <clears throat> fascinating and it's been interesting as well to hear about a part of the world that is threatened from someone who is intimately connected with it and has a perspective of the local life as well. Well, thank you very much for giving me the option to talk of, about something that is close to my heart. I mean, this is my passion. So uh, thank you very much. Your passion comes through. Thank you, Carsten.